The Defense Health Agency is out with its first study of who is getting the coronavirus vaccine and who is not. The report sheds light on some hesitancy within the military about getting the shot and also disparities connected to race, gender, service and occupation. Federal News Network's Scott Mossioni joins me with more. And Scott, let's start with the shot itself. Who is getting it and who's not? The standard for the the type of person that's getting this shot uh, the most within the military is uh, white educated males who are higher in rank, uh, also people who are in healthcare, pilots, people in the Navy, uh, also people of Asian descent as well. Uh, Now, the military, only about 27% of people have gotten the shot. And the study only looks at between December and March, so December of last year and March, about mid-March of this year. Uh, Now, it's important to note that this doesn't necessarily look at who's declining to get the shot. The military said they have about a one-third rate of declining to get the shot. It's mostly from anecdotal evidence and also from the joint staff, but there's no uh, serious quantified data for that. But this does show hesitancy because some people have had, like pilots or healthcare workers, have had uh, quite a long time to get this shot since December, while others maybe, you know, just a few months uh, have, have been able to be eligible for this. So we've seen, you know, for example, healthcare workers, only about 55, uh, 50, 55% of them have gotten that vaccination despite being, uh, it being available since, you know, back in December. Makes you wonder what they know about it that we don't. (laughs) The rest of us just got (laughs) shot. And with respect to those disparities, what are some of the trends there? Well, the disparities are really ones that we're seeing uh, similar in the civilian world as we are in the the military. Uh, The the black service members were about 28% less likely to initiate the vaccine uh, than their white counterparts. Uh, Women, 10% less likely than men to get the shot and 20% less likely if they'd previously been diagnosed with COVID-19. When it comes to military services, the Army were the least likely to get the vaccine. Only 21% of active duty Army soldiers have done that. The Marines, surprisingly, 52% more likely to get the shot. However, uh, about according to the Marine Corps, 48,000 Marines have declined to get the shot, which, if you think about it, that's on track to be about one-third of their force if it keeps kind of going in this trajectory. Navy, as we said, 45% more likely, and the Air Force, 15% more likely. Uh, when it comes to occupations, we mentioned that the healthcare providers and pilots had the, the highest rate. And then when it comes to the, the lower side of the spectrum, only 17% of service members working in motor transportation have gotten the shot, and 23% in the repairing and engineering field have gotten the shot. Uh, not really sure what you can really uh, uh, infer from the occupations, but interesting to, to look at, especially when it comes to the, the higher ends of who's getting uh, the vaccination. Yeah, in some ways that mirrors, I think, the patterns we're seeing in the population in general. And it goes along, I don't know, regional lines, perhaps, or in some cases, political lines. It's a very strange way these things are running. So what do you think is important to keep in mind about this study, Scott? One of the things to really keep in mind is that this has a high population size. So we know that uh, you know the results that they got are very solid. Another thing is that hesitancy thing that we talked about with the time between people getting the shot and being eligible for the shot. So we can't necessarily infer that uh, all Black service members are uh, hesitant to get the shot exactly or won't get the shot because they may not have had the amount of time that other service members have. We know that Black service members are most mostly 
in more enlisted classes. They don't aren't as high when it comes to senior leadership. Those are the type of people who are getting the vaccination right now. That's something that we've learned through the diversity studies that DOD has put out. So we can't necessarily grab onto this and say, okay, this is what the military is doing right now. We also know that it, maybe it's just taken some time for people. We've heard from the military that some service members just want to wait and see how the first round of people are going to get vaccinated what sort of side effects they have, how long-term side effects, anything like that. What we have seen uh, so far is, and through scientific studies and through anecdotal evidence, is that there really isn't that much of of a difference when it comes to getting the shot or not getting the shot when it comes to to side effects and things like that. Uh, You know, one day you might feel kind of crappy, but except for that, uh, there's no long-term side effects that they know of, that sort of thing. And you mentioned this hesitancy is something they are aware of among different groups of people in DOD. What are they doing about that? Interesting, they can't order anyone to have a vaccine. They can order someone to get in the way of a bullet across a battlefield, but they can't order someone to get a shot. So how are they addressing hesitancy? That's right. And just speaking to that, you know, this is an emergency use vaccine. So the FDA has not done its complete study that it usually would do for a regular vaccine for this, which is why the military is not forcing service members to actually get this vaccine. Um, You know, what the military has been doing is really the health affairs secretary of the Defense Department said that they've been addressing all the possible avenues that they can to get uh, service members to take this vaccine. And at this point, they're a little worried that it could become a readiness issue. And even the authors of this study say, you know, these disparities could create a a readiness issue as well. If you have a certain, uh, you know, demographic of people who are not getting this vaccine, well, you know, they might have an issue of spreading the disease in certain areas. Um, You know, there may be higher concentrations, as you said, geographically, or in certain positions, which may make other positions more vulnerable. So a lot of issues they're having to deal with. They've done tons of town halls to try and get people to get this shot. And are they mapping this information from the study against the infection rates? Because they're still tracking those too, aren't they? So what we're seeing when it comes to the, the actual cases is that there's still pretty much uh, a steady case caseload. We're seeing some decline because of uh, vaccinations going up. We're seeing in the civilian world that vaccinations are uh, going up and therefore the COVID rate is going down. Right now, there are currently nearly 300,000 people who are related to the Defense Department who have been infected with the COVID-19 virus. Right now, in the military itself, 193,500 have been infected and 187,800 have been recovered. So that means there's about 5,000 people within the military right now who have the disease uh, and, you know, could potentially spread it. So, uh, you know, it's still a pretty high number of, of people, uh, you know, not that high when you consider there's about a million active duty uh, people in there. But, um, you know, one other thing to take into account, there's only been 26 deaths in the military, and the military has uh, chalked that up mostly because they have a very ready fit force of young people. And uh, luckily, not too many people have died compared to uh, the civilian world. Federal News Network, Scott Massioni, thanks so much. Thank you. Be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas 
and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is starting to lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance 
uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the secretary of commerce. And I, I, my office was on the floor at the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet 
and said, you know, I told the secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work is done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. An idea has just been born. No one has seen it yet. It's tiny, but with the potential to change everything. Every new idea is precious in this way, sometimes fragile or half-baked. Its worth might not be immediately obvious. To survive, we must protect their little sparks. There it goes. Good luck, little guy. So many ideas like this are never realized. They could have been so much more than a line in an email or a mumble on a video call. When ideas are explored on Miro, the visual collaboration whiteboard, they're seen by the whole team in real time. Thoughts come to life and grow through team collaboration. Miro is a space where all ideas are taken seriously, and seriously good ideas come together in unexpected ways. Join over 30 million people collaborating at Miro.com. M I R O.com. Grab a 30 day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.